Hello, welcome to I Love Rock and Roll. I'm Ken Krantz, uh, co-hosting with me today, my good friend, Mike Sicoli. Hello, thanks for having me, Ken. Michael, what's going on? Not much, man, same old. It's nice, it's nice to have you back. It's nice to be back. I love this place. I was telling you before, it reminds me of like Judge Dredd. Yeah. This whole complex is really cool. They're filming Severance 2, the se- the second season of Severance. I thought something was going on. I walked in, yeah. and they're, they're moving a bunch of equipment. I just thought that was this place. That's pretty cool. I got to get over there. Yeah. Maybe we can wrangle Ben Stiller into an episode. Yeah. Um, our guests today, I'm excited. We have um, with us Bryn and Alex from the band Bang Camaro. What's going on, guys? Hey man, nice to see you guys. Nice. Yeah, not much, not too much going on. We released a new song, so I guess that's it. The first time in like what twelve years. Yes. So <laughs> <laughs> you guys. So I, I was, I was reading up on you, and you guys are out of Boston, correct? That's correct. And you started uh, two thousand five. Um, yep. <laughs> that looks like it was news to Alex. Yeah, I was like, was it that long ago? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, your music is, um, it is very reminiscent of like the fun 80s uh, party, like party rock, hair metal, uh, very Motley Crue and Def Leppard-esque. Um what who who were your who were your and and, and I want to get into just how many of you there are, but um who who what made you what made you want to start this band? Because I'm assuming you guys came from other bands, right? Um yeah, well we did. Um I'll 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 handle this one. Um <laughs> back in 2005, uh Brenna and I were both playing in in uh, different rock bands here in the Boston area. And the Boston music scene was heavily dominated by um, kind of seemed like this resurgence of like uh, Britpop, which was kind of happening um, pretty much all over the place with like groups like the Killers and uh, by extension, like, you know, New York bands like the Strokes. And, you know, at some point, Bryn and I are both of our bands kind of fell apart and we were just kind of like looking for something new to do. And, you know, um, back then at the end of our twenties, we were still kind of hanging out at the bar, you know, every night. And so you'd see somebody at the end of the bar and, you know, you'd make, uh, nice. And, uh, so Brynn and I would get together and, you know, we, we quickly realized that we're both from small towns. Um, Brynn is from upstate New York and I grew up in central Pennsylvania. And so, we kind of came from places where like things like hair metal never really went away. Like, you know, I don't know if you guys remember through the nineties, but like hair metal be- became like a four letter word. Yeah. And so when we started getting together, we had this, um, you know, this idea that we were just going to create like our own, you know, indie rock band, whatever it is that we were writing at the time. Um, but as our relationship developed, you know, we, kept getting into conversations about, you know, what our favorite Scorpions tunes were and uh, how much we loved Def Leppard and like how silly we thought Poison was. But, you know, we we loved all that stuff. And um, we would get together and write songs, Brent and I. And then usually by the end of the night, we'd be full of a lot of wine and, and Dr. Pepper. And, <laughs> and we would just start writing just like big guitar riffs and just kind of making each other laugh. And so at some point we came up with i think like two chord progressions which we thought were like very like rocky like a hurricane-esque and we thought they were funny and we kind of played some guitar solos over it and then i remember a couple days later Bryn came back to me with like um like he kind of dressed up a demo that we'd made and he was like listen to this and there was just no denying that it was fun and it just kind of captured something that was really honest between the two of us and it really had no we had no intention of doing anything with it we just thought it was funny um and so we ended up putting up that one song that Bryn titled bang camaro on uh, on myspace <laughs> you guys remember that that place yeah and we had no idea what to expect other than you know our friends would think it was entertaining um but then it started getting downloaded left and right and streamed and within you know a month we had like nearly tens of thousands of of plays on our on our player and back in those days that was like 
high currency. That was serious business. Um, so we started getting requests from booking agents asking us if we wanted to play with the Misfits wow. or um, Death from Above. Death from you know? Above, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. And like Death from Above was one of the bands that had kind of connected me and Bryn. We That was like a band we were like, listen to this group. We both were very much into what they were doing. And so when that happened, we were kind of like left with this, like we were kind of at a crossroads of, you know, are, are we going to chase this down, whatever it is, this Bang Camaro thing? Or are we going to try to like make a real band and like make, you know, art and, you know, try to try to be, you know, successful, you know, musicians right. and artists. And obviously we went left with it. <laughs> and um, what happened was we got booked on those shows and then very quickly, Brent and I had to figure out, well, if we're going to play a show, we want to have to figure out how to do it. Like, how do we put a bunch of people on stage or how do we make this big rock sound that we were going for? Um, and then the other thing is like, we only had one song. So in order to play these shows, we had to write a bunch of other songs. And so really quickly, we wrote what became the the bulk and the thesis of our first record. Um, and I'm pretty sure that like the second song that we wrote and we wrote it like that was Push, Push, Lady Lightning. Um, and so we, I think it took us about five weeks and we had a full set of music written and we had just kind of like figured out how to spool up, how to get the sound that we wanted. And we, we thought that it was going to involve putting a lot of people on stage to get it done. Um, but then what happened was those shows kind of fell through, but the band was already in motion. And so once we finally got the band rehearsed, we figured out who was going to be in the band, how we, we were going to do it. Um, we got booked at a show here in Boston at one of our favorite clubs. It's one of the biggest places here called the Paradise, which, you know, for you history buffs, when you two first came off the plane or the boat back in 1980, like that was the very first venue that they played uh, here in Boston. So we ended up doing this show um, with a bunch of our friends and we didn't know what to expect. We didn't know how it was going to shake out on stage. But what we ended up doing was we had just a regular band of four or five instrumentalists, you know, guitar players and drummers. And then we had this big skid row Motley Crue sound that we wanted. And so just because we didn't know what else to do, we just put as many people on stage as we could to try to emulate that sound. And then without even knowing like what we were creating, it, it, it turned into this big rock and roll circus spectacle um, that even at the very first show that we played, it was undeniable that, you just couldn't take your eyes off of it. And we we very much saw that we created the thing where there was no separate, it seemed like there was no perceived separation between what the band was doing and what the crowd was doing. We were all just one thing. And that was the thing that I think ultimately instantly connected with people. And Brynn and I saw it from that very first show and we were like, oh fuck, like we have to do this for real now. And so that's kind of how the band just kind of took on a life of its own and just took off. And then doors started opening up for us. That That's amazing. And ju I just want to paint a picture for people. When, when you say that you threw a lot of people up there uh, to sing, like I watched your, I watched uh, your, your um, Conan O'Brien appearance and there, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating. I think there was like, you would like 10 singers uh you know approximately yeah that's and, about right yeah and um it it was it was it was hard to it was hard to not uh it was hard to direct your eyes away from um but it was also um the the sound was just it was it was like it was so big. It was almost like wall of sound without any tricks because yeah. you, you were using so many vocalists. At one point I was convinced. I was like, I don't even, I'm not even positive. All these guys are in this band. Like it, it looked like there, it looked there like was a badass choir. <laughs> it, um, there was like, there was one guitar player kind of dressed like Izzy Stradlin and then everyone else was kind of dressed like me. And, um, <laughs> which, which is, which is cool, you know, it, it, cause it, it, you were, you were saying that, um, there was, it didn't feel like there was a distinction between the band and the audience. And that's, it definitely had that sort of every man, uh, vibe to it. Um, which is, y I, yeah. 
Sorry, go ahead. Which is what I think makes people want to pick up instruments and start when they see somebody that looks like them. And um, so I, I thought it was wild. I really enjoyed it. You ever get anybody trying to overpower the other person with their voice? Any rivalries? I, oh, they're all lead singers in other bands in Boston. So basically, that's what it was every night. Like, oh, nice. these guys are all really good singers and all really good showmen. It's kind of funny to watch because, like, they're all doing their own thing up there, you know? And it's, 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 it's like part of, I think, the, the interest of, of watching Ben Camaro is it's not like a choir with they're in the back and they're doing choir moves. Like, they're back there. Each one of them is a lead singer and they're bringing it. It's pretty funny. It's also, I mean, you, you, you say that you were trying to get like that big, um, like Skid Row or Motley Crue sound. And I think it's also, it's a testament to those guys, you know, like Sebastian Bach and Vince. It's a testament to how good they were that, um, that you got to get 10 guys to, to try and replicate that sound. I think well, Sebastian it's Sebastian uh, Bach. Yeah, that guy is no joke. Yeah, I think it's it's easier to make the case for uh, that type of music now because I think that everything is so niche driven that you know there's there's a place for everybody now. Um, but when we were putting the band together back in 2005, um, the climate was a lot different, and so there was a bit of a I don't want to admit that there was a bit of a novelty, but there was something new at the time to um, going back and mining that era of music for its musicality and for what we perceived as, uh, you know, the artistry that you could hear in, you know, Mutt Lang's uh, productions of Def Leppard records and, you know, when you stripped away a lot of like the ridiculousness of like the wardrobe and like, you know, at times the horrible misogyny, you know, what you're left with is some really well-crafted pop music. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what really appealed to me and Bryn that we could use this medium to kind of mine all the things, you know, a lot of the things that we loved when we were younger in rock music and bring it back in a manner that we appreciate where we're not, you know, it's not a send up. It's more done out of an appreciation and it's more done out of love. Um, so like, I think that that sort of thing will kind of land a lot better now, but like back in those days, like hair metal, like I said, was like a really like offensive word. Yeah. So for us to be able to kind of like spin that around and kind of take elements of that, but do it, looking like an everyman was very much a part of you know of of what we've spoken about like we didn't want to have any of that ostentatious you know we didn't want any of the scarves we didn't want any of the limousines we didn't want any of the champagne you know we wanted more of just like we came from this 90s rock sensibility and we wanted to take um the elements of music that we liked from the 80s and the 70s and kind of infuse it with this kind of more like DIY ethos. Yeah. And I think that played out really well with what we were doing. Yeah. That's, that's what I loved about watching the Conan appear. I mean, I was joking before, but it really looked like maybe a couple of those guys got past security, you know, and just jumped up on stage with you. And um, I do like that because it, it makes it, it makes it so much more accessible for the listeners. And I, I'm guessing that, um, Back in the early 2000s, uh, there was such um, music had gotten sort of so serious again. It seems like yeah. it's cyclical that this happens. And um, I just watched that. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that Meet Me in the Bathroom documentary that Showtime did. Uh, the um, I, I read the beginning of that book. I didn't. I read the beginning of the book too, and I I hate to say it, it it I couldn't get through it. Um, I don't remember why I put it down. I, I found it interesting, but then I probably found some fantasy novel I read. I don't know. I'm a nerd, but um, I I, I did want to go back to it because those some of the people in those books were like in that book 
we're like friends of friends and stuff right. because you know New York to Boston isn't that far, so it was interesting. And you know, we did play with the Yeah Yeah Yeahs one time, so that is awesome. Um, that yeah that, that that was the contemporary time to what we were doing yeah yes yeah but i i was i was just gonna say what you were doing it was like a one and 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 i by the way i love those bands i'm not uh i'm i'm not uh i'm not shitting on them at all i i love the strokes and the yeah yeah yes um but what you guys did was such a was such a departure and it was um i think I think maybe you guys, um, I know you, you, you had a resurgence recently. Uh, you got a call from James Gunn uh, about putting your music in Peacemaker. Um, yeah, that sort of sparked interest in you again. But I also think like, um, when like the world is such a shit show now. And so when, when the music, you know, when when the music, uh, it's lighter and and more of a party vibe, like this is the best time for for people to latch onto that. Yeah, I think I kind of oscillate. Like sometimes I get really depressed by everything going on right now, and I get into some really like you know dark music. But then other times, yeah, you just want to turn your brain off and have a good time. I guess so I can see that. Yeah. Yeah, I um I'm I have like a very uh dark sense of humor and I found the last couple years that the the art that I would normally gravitate towards I've I've not been and I've been looking for it's been like a lot of Ted Lasso for me. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I I've, I've, I've been looking for like you said things things to distract you and and take your mind off it. Yeah, it seems like just to echo what you're saying, uh, <laughs> this is definitely the time for such things. Um, I don't know about you, but like when I'm looking for something to watch on television, everything, 99% of everything out there is some horrible true crime documentary um, and nothing but just a lot of just like low level misery that we're all consuming. Um, so, yeah, there is something to be said for, you know, being able to create something that is um, fun. And is kind of outside of all that bullshit that uh, we seem to be seeing on, on the news every day. But having said that, <laughs> uh, you know, when Ban Camaro got together and we started making our songs, you know, one of our charges was to try to make the music as fun and as simple and as palatable as possible. The idea being that, you know, um, a really well-crafted pop tune will have the listener singing along by the second chorus after the first listen, like during the first listen. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to kind of infuse that same idea in what we're doing. And so that's why when you listen to Band Camaro's music, you know, there aren't a lot of lyrics. I mean, there, there really aren't because the whole idea is that we want to, you know, try to get people just to sing along and, you know, forget about the trouble and, and, and have a good time. But um since we got back together this past year, I think that it, it's it's a little undeniable that, you know, what's happening in our world and, you know, what's happening in like locally around us and like how we're going about our days. It's impossible for that to not leak its way into the even the music that Ban Camaro is making, mm -hmm. because, you know, we're we I like to think that we're like Brent and I and, and, and Dave, we're not people that, you know, don't read the news or keep our heads, you know, buried under the sand. Um, so now I'm kind of excited about this because with some of the music that we're going to be putting out there, you know, it's all going to be very much like a party rock and roll kind of hard rock vibe sort of thing. But, you know, in, in some places we're going to say something, um, because we, we, you know, we have some observations and, you know, wherever we seem to feel that it should make its way into the music, it, it has. And so, um, so even Ban Camaro is not, uh, <laughs> Estranged from, from from that sort of like uh, messaging. Um, or oh, the insanity around us right now. Uh, Alex, you mentioned before you you uh, you started this club uh, in Boston that uh, was one of you two. It was you two's first American show. Um, do you do you geek out on on rooms like that with a lot of history behind them? Um, where, like, when I know the history, <laughs> uh, I, I will, um, 
you know, here, like Boston is like, it's, it's the nicest, it's a historic town, you know, you know, just going back to through the history of, of the country, but also, you know, it's, it's been home to, you know, some, some pretty cool things like, yeah, you two came here and played at the paradise back in, in 1980. Um, I talk about that because I know that with, you know, some people that you meet here around town, like you'll invariably meet somebody who was at that show. It's just part of like the local lore and kind of like the myth making, um, like, it's not exactly the same thing, but like at the same club, I think it was sometime, sometime in the in the early two thousands after um, uh, Queens of the Stone Age put out that song for the Deaf record. Mm -hmm. It's a great um, album. Oh my god! And <laughs> that's so, so that's when they were kind of they weren't they weren't just a young band like they were a known entity, but like they got Dave Grohl in the band. Yes. And so on that tour, everybody talks about how you know. Uh, Queens of the Stone Age came to the Paradise on that tour, and it was like the one time that you could see Dave Grohl, yes, uh, mm -hmm. you know, at a small club like that. You know, all our friends, you know, who knows, it ended up like supplying the drugs, and you know, it, it was <laughs> just like one of those like seminal like moments that you know you keep hearing about. So that's another one that always is always fresh in my mind. I, I yeah, I was like three feet away from the stage. That was awesome. That was a really good show. Just watching Dave Grohl because he set his drums up pretty close to yeah. the front of the stage too. Just watching him you know, beat the hell out of those drums from that close was sweet. I saw that. I saw that tour. Um, they played at the uh, the Bowery Ballroom in New York City, yep. which I don't even you know maybe fits five hundred people if I had to guess. And yeah, we played there. Oh yeah, that's that's a really cool room, mm -hmm. right? I've I've never seen a show there and been disappointed. Um, but it's like you said, I, you couldn't take your eyes off Dave Grohl and, and Josh Homme is one of, uh, the great modern frontmen in rock. And it was like, I, I wasn't even looking at him. You just, I could not stop watching how hard Dave Grohl hit the drums. Yeah. That guy has a lot of energy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, that was an awesome show. So um, oh, oh, ACDC had played at the paradise too. That's right. Yeah, previous to 1980. That, that place has been around a long time. Just a little trivia there. Oh, so that was like um, like Bon Scott, ACDC. Yeah. Um, I love, I lo like as a comedian, I love, I love rooms like that. I love when I'm hitting stages that I know there's a lot of history behind. Um, yeah. My uh, my grandfather was a trumpet player. He had his own orchestra. He he died when I was little. I never knew him, but he had his own orchestra in the fifties and sixties. And I recently played a show in uh, Sunnybrook Music Hall in Pennsylvania, and it was uh, it was a big music hall during the big band era. It's like Duke Ellington played there, Nat King Cole, Sinatra. And you telling dick jokes. <laughs> I'm telling I'm telling dick jokes on it, but I called I called my mom right before the show and was like, Hey, did grandpa ever play this music hall? And she recognized the name and she was like, Yeah, definitely. He I remember oh, him awesome. talking about it. Yeah. So it was like, you know, sixty something years later, I was standing on the same stage as my grandpa. And um Backstage, everybody who'd like performed there from the 40s on had had autographed the wall. And you see um, holes in the wall where people took out all the famous autographs because they're <laughs> oh, such wow. animals. Yeah. So it's like every time you saw a hole, you were like, oh, that was probably Sinatra or. Um, but I went looking because I'm such a geek for history. I went looking around and I did find Bill Haley's autograph, which I thought was. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Um, you know, one venue that I found interesting because so many famous people had played there, but it was so small was, uh, what was it, Maxwell's in Hoboken? Yes. Yeah, that was a great. It's not there anymore, unfortunately. No. But um, yeah, you play there. It's this tiny little place. And like the green room is basically this basement with a bunch of kegs that you have to move out of the way or sit on. <laughs> but man, everyone has played there or had played there. Yeah, that was a legendary venue. So, you know, uh, a big one for us would have been, I forget, it would have been sometime in the, in the year 2007. And I think it would have been either our first or second trip out to the West Coast. And because of 
you know, the music that we grew up listening to and what Bang Camaro was all about, going out to LA was kind of a really big deal for us. So the first time we went, we set up at the Troubadour, mm-hmm. like the world famous Troubadour, which to us is like, this is the house that, you know, Guns N' Roses built without yeah. us knowing that, you know, the whole 70s rock scene and Warren Zevon and... Elton in. John's first show in the US. Elton yeah. John's yeah. first show. Wow. Um, you know, Joni Mitchell, like uh, James Taylor. Like that used to be like the big like scene uh, uh, for the Troubadour. So anyway, we go out there and we do our sound check. And of course, we got a couple hours to kill because when you're in a rock band, you're spending a lot of time just sitting around doing nothing um, and just kind of waiting to go on stage or just waiting to go, you know, get kicked out of a party or something. <laughs> and so I, we ended up at the Rainbow Bar and Grill um which is every bit as legendary as uh as we'd read about and so we're in there and you can imagine that when banker Mauer shows up anywhere we show up 15 to 20 guys deep so it's always like a spectacle it's always a thing where the like wait staff or you know everybody's like what's going on here who are you people blah 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 <laughs> And so half of us are doing drugs in the parking lot. Half of us are drinking at the bar. Um, some of us are getting a pizza. And it had come up that Guns N' Roses, if you watch the November Rain video, yeah. there's a scene, like everybody in that video gets a scene, kind of like in the same way that like in like uh, Song Remains the Same, I think. Yes. Um, so Duff gets his scene, you know, sitting at a table in, in, the, uh, in the rainbow. And so we're like let's go get our photo taken in the, at that table. And everybody's all excited. We all just roll in there. We all get in, into this table. We're all on top of each other. So we've got the camera on, they take the photograph and, you know, we take another one and we, then we get out of there. And then, you know, I think like the bartender was like, no, you fucking idiots. It was the other table over there. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it's a great photograph. And like, if you ever, <laughs> We only ever sold one poster, and I have it in my uh, <laughs> in my foyer over here. But it's just us at the at the rainbow at the wrong table, thinking that we were doing the, uh, the Guns N' Roses November Rain deal. Um, that that per- perfectly encapsulates Ben Camaro in a lot of ways, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Anyway, that show that night, okay, like Brent and I would always have moments where we'd be like, we'd like nudge each other, being like. Do you believe that this is happening? Like, like I think the last time like that happened, we were in an elevator with Sway from MTV. Remember that? Anyway, we're playing on a three-band bill. Okay, the two other bands are local. The first band, there's a handful of people out there. The second band, I don't know who they are. They're done up. Everybody looks like Izzy Stradlin. All right, and. The place clears out. Brent, yeah, you remember there's no the one. There was nobody in there. Oh, man. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, we just came out to L.A. and we're going to play to nobody. Like, this is the worst possible scenario. Anyway, uh, that band clears out. The place fills. Waiting for us. The place is sold out. Uh, All right. Awesome. Nice. I've never been one for stage fright. Like, I like going on stage. Being on, on stage is a lot of fun. You get to kick your legs around and make faces at people and play your instrument. But I remember seeing the lights go down and they had like these um, like these police car lights kind of go on. And I threw up. <laughs> I got so nervous. I got so nervous. And that's the only time that that's ever happened to me with Ben Camaro. And I remember it was just, it was this feeling like, I read the dirt, you know, yeah. I bought appetite for destruction in 1987. Like, this is my moment. This is it. And uh, anyway, <laughs> it was a fucking awesome show. Right, Bryn? It was a good show. Yeah. I, I remember afterwards, the uh, light guy came running up to us. He's like, there hasn't been a band like you guys around here in years. And uh, I, the lighting guy was just so pumped about <laughs> our music. Like it was the biggest light show I've ever seen in the, yeah. you know. Oh my God. The photographs on that show were amazing. <laughs> they were unparalleled. Um, I think my yeah. favorite part from that show was um, when we were all hanging out in the green room before the show. And of course, we're talking about the dirt and, and stuff like that. And, you know, someone's like, think about like all the shit Tommy Lee's done in here. Then we're all kind of like sitting on these like couches and stuff. And we're like, oh. Yeah, everybody everybody just got up. <laughs> we're like, oh. <laughs> maybe, maybe I'll go outside. It's gross in here. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, talk about legendary stages. That was one that like, it was very apparent to me when we were going on stage, how big, big a deal this was for me and Bryn. And uh, yeah, it, it couldn't have gone any better. Uh, the only thing that, that could have gone better is like Lemmy could have been sitting at the bar when we went to the rainbow. That's, that's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah. Um, that was the only thing that didn't happen. <laughs> Other times we were there, he was there, which has been awesome, but not bad time. We just had a, I just interviewed Matt Sorum a couple weeks ago and he was telling a story about Lemmy. I guess he, Matt did a tour with Motorhead. Um, Oh, their, wow. their drummer was like on some European version of I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And Motorhead <laughs> had booked a small club tour. And okay. uh, so let me text Matt Sorum asking, um, hey, do you do you want to go on tour with Motorhead for the summer? And Matt text back, of course, but why me? <laughs> Cause like he couldn't believe his good luck. And then Lemmy wrote back because Dave Grohl's not available. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Which I thought was such a fucking great story. So it was funny. One time when we were at the rainbow, Lemmy was sitting there. So we we're all like, Oh man, you know, it's Lemmy, you know, fucking Lemmy. And, uh, the, um, the bartender saw us all kind of like, you know, looking over at Lemmy and being excited. And she's like, Go talk to him. Lemmy ain't shit. <laughs> We're like, okay. Oh, hello, Mr. Killmister. Oh. <laughs> There's nothing like a bartender to put people in their place, though, right? Like yeah. they've. Yeah, the bartender at the Rainbows for sure seen it all. Oh, yeah. And to her, Lemmy probably wasn't shit. <laughs> Um, I, so I love, I don't want to say that you guys, um, and you were sort of alluding to this before, not, not that you started the band as a joke, uh, because you, you've clearly got real appreciation for the music, but it was, um, you did, you know, there's certain, you're, you're doing it with a sense of humor for sure. But I, I love that you started this just kind of like as a goof out of the love for the music and then before you know it you guys are playing Lollapalooza you're on Guitar Hero which um, I don't know if people remember what a big deal Guitar Hero was mm -hmm. yeah, it was huge at the time millions of sales people were saying that Guitar Hero is what was bringing guitar rock back Yeah, like kids were starting to take guitar lessons again because of the video games and stuff which was a kind of a crazy time so that's it's it's I mean I'm guessing that you guys became uh probably more successful doing this sort of thing that you started as a goof than if you had stayed in whatever various indie rock bands you were all in. I mean, I like to go from, hey, wouldn't this be funny if we did this to, to playing Lollapalooza? Um, what what year what year did you do Lollapalooza? Who were you on the bill with? 2008. And I think the uh, like uh, the, the major headliner um, on the day that we played was Radiohead. Um, the Tours were also there. Block Party, Steve Malkmus and the Jicks. Um, Gogo Bordello. Um, oh, they're so great. Oh yeah. That, that, that whole thing was just, was like a dream. Um, just being able to, you know, walk through the backstage area as, you know, semi imposters and be like, I can't believe that we made it here. Um, and, uh, you know, just going back to what you said before about, you know, just the comedy piece, um, or just when, when the band got going and we recorded a couple of singles, and it was, it was kind of clear to Bryn and I that we were starting to get some traction with it. Um, I don't know about Bryn, but I had a lot of trepidation around it at first because I was like, wait a second, like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be remembered for this and not for like the serious, you know, guitar player, songwriter that I wanted to be. Um, and so it took a little while of coming around to that, you know, but you know, 
getting getting the opportunity to go on the road and then play some great gigs and like see like this thing kind of like snowball you know really helped um put that together uh but over the years like that we were doing it like i had a hard time like personally i had a hard time like with the whole like like are we being funny or like it like are we putting comedy in what we're doing or are we a rock band that just has this unique bent and it was kind of all of those things i think and it, it took a, a little bit of soul searching for me personally to realize that um the piece of comedy and levity that we would infuse into our music was something that was always very present in a lot of the music that i grew up listening to yeah like when I go back and I think about like, oh, like I did spend a lot of time listening to Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> I did spend a lot of time listening to Spinal Tap. Like when you go back and you and you listen to Bon Scott's lyrics, like like he really rode that line of just like, you know, poetry and, you know, comedy. Yes. And being able to kind of come around to this idea that like, oh, all of the best work or at least all the things that I feel are the best work have some sort of element of this, you know, comedy and tragedy being put together. You know, once I came, you know, to that peanut butter and chocolate realization, like all of this made a lot of sense to me. And uh, now looking at what Ban Camaro does, like from a songwriting perspective, for me, it's the perfect marriage of being able to put great guitar riffs together with something funny but also something kind of biting and true, you know? And so it took a long time to get that journey, you know, to make peace with it. But having come to that realization, I, I, you know, I, I finally, it took me a while, but I finally have made sense of like why the whole Ban Camaro project and what our point of view, why that makes a lot of sense to me and why it's something that we're, we're picking up after 13 years of putting it down, why it still seems relevant to us. How does performing the performance part of it feel for you? Like, how does it different differentiate between like Bang Camaro and some of the other things, other projects you've worked on, other bands you've been in, the actual performance part of it? Like, do you get the same hype when you're up there doing Bang Camaro than your other bands? Do you feel the same like inside? Because I know like sometimes during certain shows, certain jokes hit different. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, how does how does it feel for you guys when you're when you're actually up there performing? I would say with Bang Camaro, there's 10 times more energy than mm -hmm. any other band I've played with live because like you're up there, not with four people playing more laid back indie rock that we were kind of used to, but we're up there with 10 people who've just been on the road together for three months and we're all in this together and we go up there just, just to try to rule mm -hmm. that room. So and it's like a blast. Yeah, yeah, there's there's some amount of just like this energy of this many people with one goal, which is to rock everyone in that room. Mm -hmm. And you know, we we played some bad shows with Bang Camaro. There were there were times when there was only maybe twenty or thirty people in the crowd, and we'd make jokes that like, "Oh no, is this going to be the show where there's more people in the band than the yeah?" Crowd? I was going to say, "Do you ever tell half the band like, let's just <laughs> go stand in the crowd tonight'?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gotta... never actually happened, but it did. It came close. What was that town in Texas, Alex? Oh, I think that was in Amarillo. Yeah, in Amarillo, Texas, we played a show at this strange kind of like ymca center or something i don't know it wasn't it wasn't our normal type of venue and not many kids showed up so alex came up with this idea which is like all right we're not even going to be on the stage we're going to get off the stage we're going to surround everyone there and we're just going to play at them <laughs> and uh and i was kind of like i don't know how i feel about this like i want everyone to get the full ben camaro show wherever we go but I was like, okay, let's, you know, um, Alex got me to agree to it. And uh, it was kind of awesome. And there, there were people for years that would pop up on social media and they were like, you know, we were at the Amarillo show and that was mind blowing. There's <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of angry people screaming rock at you. <laughs> That's the best too, when it's um, like, you can't ever replicate those moments. You, you could never try and do it again. Um, but for the people that are in the room, it's, it's something that they never forget. 
Yeah, and it's interesting too because you know after that show, I was I was pretty down. You know, you you don't want to travel. You're traveling around the country. You're tired. It's you know you guys know you you tour and, and and do comedy. It's it's not like your job is only an hour a day. You know, all the travel, all the hurry up and wait, all the yeah. getting ready. It, it it's a lot of work, and so you know you you you're putting your home life on hold. You travel for months on the road. And you play to a small group like that, it can be, it can be, you know, it can be kind of hard, but it's the, the feedback we got afterwards that, like you said, like we could never do that again. And the people there, it, it like meant the world to them it was this strange, different perspective on it that I, I didn't have that night, but you know, I've, I've got, I've kind of grown to love the memory of that show. <laughs> yeah, me too. Because like Brent is right. That show was like, a tough one because when we got to Amarillo I remember like it felt like that was the lowest point of the band ever <laughs> like it was just dark we'd been on the road for about five weeks at that point it was we were in West Texas and I remember it was freezing which was yeah. like kind of like outside of what you would expect from Texas and yeah we managed to just kind of put on a show that we're still talking about 13 years later and it Bryn's not exaggerating there were probably only about 20 people there but like while when we were playing we were all in band camaro all of us mm -hmm. and i think that's what really resonated with, with with the folks that came to that show and um you know we still hear from them every now and again about how you know what a life changer that was or whatever what a great experience but um dawes our bass player and our our, our, our third um partner here he made a great comment um in the fall or at the, in the late summer when we were getting the group into the studio to record vocals and one of the things that we were doing was we were bringing back you know a bunch of our old singers and we were reuniting and having um you know we were getting everybody back in the room and like reminiscing and, and sharing stories but we also took the opportunity to invite some friends of ours that had not performed on Bank of Records, who are great singers, um, just because we, you know, we wanted to share the experience with other friends of ours. And halfway through the experience, because we have all these people surrounded around a microphone and not everybody knows each other very well. Some of them have just kind of met each other, like mm -hmm. right when we got there. And so you kind of put them behind a microphone. It's kind of like sticking them in the trenches. And then a few hours later, we've created a track and everybody is, is really kind of getting off and listening to what we're doing. And I remember Dawes turned to me and he's just like, ah, I forgot that we do this, that we, we put people in these situations where they have the times of their lives. Um, specifically, um, our old friend, Mike Nastry, um, he was the vocalist and songwriter for a group here in Boston called Harris, mm -hmm. you know, between Brit and I, like Harris was like the greatest band. They were just it. They embodied just about everything about being in a rock band that I wanted to experience. Um, except like they wrote the really great songs. <laughs> <laughs> so we were, we got our, our buddy Mike to come down and Mike is a, is a really, really, um, great singer um awesome dude and just like he's the type of person that when he's around he's very earnest about just like spending wanting to spend time with you and you know and he just he just reminded me like how much it meant to him to one hang out with me and Bryn and the band but also to be involved in what we were doing and it was such a, a great thing to see that after all of these years all these things that we've done and not done that we're still getting together and people are just like, thank you for this. This was a lot. This meant a lot to me. And so in getting the band back together, uh, that has been one of the, the um, really exciting things for me to be able to see new people get involved in what we're doing, you know, get them kind of into what's happening and then watch them go like, oh, wow, I get this. Yeah, that's very cool that, um, that you bring your friends along for the ride. Um, so, so, uh, James Gunn calls you about putting your music in Peacemaker 
And I love what he did with that series and and the whole uh, hair metal soundtrack. Um, so now there's a little bit of a resurgent. At the, at, the, at the point that he calls you, how long had Ben Camaro been dormant? Well, first we should mention that it, James Gunn didn't call us directly. It was um, this strange, it, you know, uh, someone contacted about us about licensing music for a possible new show with a superhero called Peacemaker. And Alex and I didn't really know what to make of it. We're like, you know who Peacemaker is? No. Do you know anything about this show? No. When's it going to come out? I don't know, maybe in a year. And they were also not telling us we would definitely be in it. There was like, we weren't sure if it was like someone fucking with us or not. Like we didn't really. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, so Alex and I started messaging like, because we hadn't been doing this in a long time either. Like, okay, they want to know how much they we, we want to get paid for this placement. We're like, I don't, I don't know. We haven't doing, we haven't done this in 12 years. Like we don't know the going rates. We were pretty like out of the loop. Um, and we didn't even know if we could trust this person. Right. So we just pushed it off and didn't really talk to them that much and threw some numbers around. But luckily, um, we, uh, luckily we sold our publishing, which is something you'll never hear anyone else say. <laughs> <laughs> like to make some money and keep the band going about 12 years ago, we sold our publishing for not enough amount of money. But what that did do is give us a, a contact where, because our publishing had to also okay the placement. Mm -hmm. So they went in there guns blazing, like, okay, like this is what we want for the song to put in the trailer or to put in the episode. And Luckily, they were uh, a lot more pro than we were and knew exactly what they were doing. And it, so because of them, uh, it all ended up working out. But when we found out we were going to be in the trailer, too, it was really confusing. And we didn't we didn't know where this was coming from. Then, then we did find out, oh, it's coming straight from James Gunn. Like, James Gunn is the guy that wants to put us in, in Peacemaker. And that was really cool. But it wasn't obvious at first. It's also such a compliment from him, especially him, because like he's no music is like his thing. Soundtracks are his thing and all of his movies and shows. Yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy. Like, you know, it's the 70s soft rock. But yeah. Like, yeah. Nailed soundtrack, right. So good. So is that what uh, is that what gets the creative juices going again for you guys? Was all this um, uh, interest again? Um, I think so. Uh, you know, over the years, you know, Brent and I would constantly just, you know, like Brent and I have been constantly, you know, trading ideas back and forth and kind of reminiscing about, about the band, you know, for the last decade. Um, but you know, nothing really stuck, you know, there was no real interest between the two of us as to, you know, getting band career off the ground is a lot of, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, I can't imagine having, having to manage that many egos and that many people and, and right. that. At the same time, you know, like over the course of the, the last decade, both, both Brent and I, you know, we, we've gotten on with our lives and we're all just very busy doing things. Um, but then when we started hearing from uh, HBO, uh, like Bryn said, we kind of had to figure out like what, like how the hell does this work? Like who do we talk to? Like who do we get a do we get a lawyer? Does somebody represent us? Anyway, um, fortunately, we we know some people who are kind of still keyed into the industry, and you know they were able to kind of give us some pointers and um, put us involved, uh, put us in contact with uh, the head of our of, of our whoever reps our publishing. So they, that's how they were able to go in guns blazing and, and, and do what they had to do. Um, but in the course of getting all that done, we had to just do a lot of administrative stuff that nobody liked to do. Like um, we had to form an LLC. Uh, we had to, uh, well, that's pretty much it. But that was just a lot of paperwork involved. And in the course of doing that, um, the three of us would just kind of get together. It was kind of over the holidays and we were just kind of like, you know, just hanging out. And I think it must have been sometime around 2008, 2009. Like, Brent and I have always just kind of just made puns and jokes to each other about, you know, things that we want to do, things that we think are funny. And I remember I had this, this, uh, I had this moment in the van, I think I was just like, 
<sighs> too fast for love, uh, too young to fall in love. They both started with two and ended up with love. So I just put them together. And I was like, hey, Bryn, we should write uh, too fast to fall in love. And he was like, that's a good idea. <laughs> and then yeah, we, we've joked about it for a decade. Then we, we, and did we didn't do anything. And then one day <laughs> we were here, here in this office and uh, we were just kind of bullshitting and just kind of like doing some paperwork, whatever. And Bryn's like, well, I was in the shower and I had this idea. All right. And then, you know, I had a guitar and I handed it to him. And within seconds, Bryn just kind of like, if it went like this and went like this, and then boom, that was too fast to fall in love. It's just pretty much just spilled right out of him. And Dave, Dave and I were sitting there and we're like, I guess, I guess we got a new song. Let's, let's do this. And yeah, the thing like, yeah, I totally forgot about this. We, we didn't even really get together to write music or be like, okay, we're going to start Bang Camaro again or anything like that. We got together because we were excited about the trailer that came out. And I don't know if you saw the Peacemaker trailer, yeah. but it was like half of it is Motley Crue. And the second half of it is our song, Push, Push, Lady Lightning. And um, so we just got together to watch that. And uh, that was that was kind of the moment that I got really excited because, you know, it's the fucking crew. And then, and then it builds into us. Like, whoever thought that would happen? Like, that was just such... And, you know, with James Gunn directing and having it edited so epically, it was just, like, really cool to, to see that. And that. And so, yeah, we just got together to watch that and then... And kind of wrote like a song and a half that day. And then from then we. And, and so well, what the deal was like, <laughs> you know, we're all very reticent to jump back into the whole Bang Camaro deal, because like I said, it's there's a lot, a lot of moving parts mm -hmm. and a lot, a lot that goes in, um, you know, relationships and all that. And so we want to if we're going to do anything, we just want to make sure that we're having a good time. We're just kind of keeping it light. And so we had this one song. We're like, why don't we go into the studio in February? This is February of, uh, of this year. And we'll just bang the song out in a day. You know, we'll put it out there. We'll surprise everybody. Be like, hey, everybody, look, we, we did a Bang Camaro song. And we figured anybody who's a Bang Camaro fan would be excited by it. And that'll be that. So we reached out to our longtime uh, engineer and producer, Mike Quinn, and said, hey, Quinn, we're getting back together again and we want to do a song. And I thought he was going to be like, cool, let's go do this. Absolutely. He was, it, I didn't get that response. I got, I'm busy for the next three months. <laughs> <laughs> and but I was this like, the right, but, but, the but we're getting the band response. back together. He's like, yeah, okay. Like I'll, I'll be ready in March if you want. <laughs> and I remember going to Quinn like, I don't, I don't know if Quinn wants to do this. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that's just Mike Quinn for you. And so we're like, fine, we'll, we'll wait on Quinn. It didn't make any sense to us to go and make this record with anybody else other than, you know, Mike Quinn, because he's one of us and it would be good to see him again. And while we were waiting, we wrote 13, no, 12, 12 more songs. And they just kind of happened like that. And I, I, to be honest, I don't think any, any of us kind of, uh, presume that, hey, we're going to be Bang Camaro again and make another Bang Camaro record. It wasn't like that. It was just more like, I wrote this song and I really like this song. And this would sound cool as a Bang Camaro song. Bryn, what do you think? And he'd say like, yeah, I think so too. And then our bass player, Dawes, he'd show, he kept showing up with like these fully realized like masterpieces that Bryn and I were like, it would be irresponsible of us not to see this through because <laughs> these songs are so good. So before we knew it, we we kind of had to like get our heads wrapped around this idea of like, are we making a fucking record? Because I think we were just going to make a song, but now we're making a record. And then yeah, we really fell into that by mistake. Um, it's great. Uh, I I can't wait to hear it. Do you have um? Do you have a release date? Are there more singles coming? Um, we no. Have a Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say no firm release date on the record. We definitely have more singles coming. Mm -hmm. I love the new song. Um, uh, I It's funny. I grew up, I was a child of the eighties. So I was the whole MTV when they first started playing videos generation. And I did not like, I didn't, I couldn't get into any of the 
quote unquote hair metal. I couldn't get into it when when it first came around because I couldn't get past the presentation. I I couldn't get I couldn't get past how goofy they were all dressed. It just looked to me like everybody was just trying to dress like the New York Dolls, but the songs weren't as good. Um, but as I've gotten older, like the older I get, the more I really love that music. Like um, I, I started listening to Motley Crue in my 40s. <laughs> so, <laughs> you don't hear that very often. No. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I love it. I love I love the I love the whole party vibe to it. I, I, I think it's um, I definitely think it's a voice that's needed right now. Definitely get you Thank hyped you. too. Yeah. Do, do you are there are there plans to uh, take the record out on tour? We don't have any plans right now. Um, we're just trying to put all of our time in finishing our recordings. Um, uh, a few people have talked to us about it. Um, we've gotten a few offers already to, to do some shows, but, um, we're kind of taking it one step at a time because we have this, uh, getting warship of a band moving again is like, you know, it's a lot of work and a lot of logistics and we're just, we're just not sure yet. Yeah. Yeah, I can't. I can't. It's like you said, there's so many moving parts. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine getting 20 people that liked each other, you know, or like to, that even just got along well enough in, in a room to, to pull off uh, an entire tour. But <laughs> I hope you do. I, I would love to come see you guys. Thanks, man. Uh, that would that would be quite the undertaking and adventure. Um who knows? We haven't figured it out yet. Um, but yeah, like Brent says, we are just full steam ahead, just trying to finish our record and making these songs. And uh, personally, you know, making the music, like being back to this is something that um, I find incredibly um, rewarding. And like, that's kind of the charge for Ban Camaro at the moment, just kind of making, making sure that every song that we put out is you know, I want them to all, all be bangers. So uh, I think that's where where our heads are at at the moment. Playing shows, we'll see. Well, hopefully. Um, guys, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, you were awesome. I hope you had a good time. Um, where where can people uh if people want to follow you where can they find you the the new we're gonna we're gonna tack your new single too fast to fall in love at the end of the at the end of this episode but where can people if they want to find the band where can they find you we're on all the major streaming services you know if you have spotify uh Let's see. Uh, we're uh, we're at, on Facebook slash Bang Camaro, Instagram slash Bang Camaro. Uh, YouTube is like exact URL, but if you just do a search for Bang Camaro, we'll pop up mm -hmm. quickly. We're we're an easy Google search. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Michael. Anything? Anything to promote? I'm with you at Laugh It Up coming up and Stress Factory. Yeah, oh yeah, you, you can see the two of us. Um, December 23rd in Poughkeepsie, uh, which is oh. always, I'm sure you guys have, you must have been depressed in Poughkeepsie at some point. <laughs> oh, we were really depressed in Poughkeepsie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the Chance? It, the, the Chance, chance. that's yeah. a cool theater. And they spelled our name wrong on the marquee. <laughs> <laughs> And But the best part is that inside they had a bunch of, uh, you know, um, so, like autographed uh, portraits of the people that played there. Mm -hmm. And it's John McEnroe, which I found amazing. <laughs> There's a picture of John McEnroe like rocking. That is, I've actually, I've seen John McEnroe play. Um, really? I saw the Rolling <laughs> Stones on their 40 Licks tour. And the Pretenders were the opening band. And the Pretenders brought John McEnroe out as a guest <laughs> bass player, which I always thought was so weird because usually you bring out a guest that's as good or better than, who, you know, whoever is playing that uh, playing that instrument. 
but it's like they brought out John McEnroe. I was like, I don't even know that that thing's plugged in. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I had no idea he played. So I was really pumped about that picture. <laughs> well, isn't he married to um, uh, Patty Smythe? from uh scandal so maybe yeah yeah he I is so. yeah, yeah the goodbye to she... you singer yeah um so maybe did you know she was nearly in van halen yes i did <laughs> i did hear that somewhere that would Amazing. have been that would have been interesting do you think gary sharon uh even remembers that he was in van halen at this point oh, gary sharon <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, he's a Boston guy. We've met him a number of times. He's yeah. a really cool guy, but, um, we always talk to him about extreme, never Van Halen. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I actually read an article about, uh, the tour that he did with them and how they were playing like real deep cuts and, and they were going deep into Van Halen's history and playing stuff that had never been played. And, um, I think it's. It's like it's a shame that they kind of turned that time with them into the into a punchline. But um, I do remember when they were inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, you know, they inducted uh, Roth and Sammy Hagar. I do remember Sammy Hagar saying like, and Gary should be here because he was part of all this, too. And I always thought that was a very uh, classy move. Yeah, I think it was just bad timing for Gary. He's a great vocalist. Yeah, yeah, real talented. I didn't really love that single they came out with. I can't even remember the name. <laughs> no, I, I went after reading that article, I went back and tried listening to the album. And uh, it, it, it was rough, but I, they pro I would have liked to have seen it live when they were talking about everything that had been played. But, um, all right. We, we got off topic, but guys, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for coming on and um, enjoy Too Fast to Fall in Love. We'll see you next week.